This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. Hello, and welcome to the season finale of Cape Fear Unearthed, a podcast from Star News Media. As always, I'm your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter for the Star News here in Wilmington, North Carolina. When you're not joining me on this podcast to talk about Cape Fear history, you can find my byline on coverage of the local film and television industry, my weekly TV Hunter column, and more over at starnewsonline.com. This week, we're closing out our second season. But don't worry, we've got plenty more Cape Fear on Earth coming your way this summer. But before we sign off, I've got one more chapter to share with you from our local history book of persisting legends, historical oddities, and mysterious figures. And let me be the first to say that this story is a wild one. I've held on to it for more than a year now because I wasn't even sure how to tell it. There's a chance that it's the calculated weaving of a brilliant storyteller. But there's also the possibility that there's some shred of truth buried within its twist and turns. So to close out this season, I'm finally going to tell you the story that has fascinated, perplexed, and frankly baffled me, and use it as a launching point to talk more broadly about the men and women who have preserved this region's rich history for all of us to enjoy. As usual, I will share with you the story as it has been passed down through history and told through legend and then I'll bring in someone from the community with knowledge of our tale to continue the discussion and explore whether or not history can be trusted. So settle in for the season finale of Cape Fear Unearthed as we search for fact and fiction in the bizarre story of the Suicide Club. I want to start out by giving you a little context into how I first encountered the story of the Suicide Club. And note that we're going to be talking about some sensitive topics throughout this episode. Now, one of the first books I ever picked up when I started creating this podcast in the summer of 2017 was Stories Old and New of the Cape Fear Region, Lewis T. Moore's celebrated canon of stories from Wilmington's early days through the mid-20th century. I've referenced it several times on the show. The story of the Suicide Club comes about midway into the book and is dubbed a strange tradition by Moore, who is also one of the most beloved photographers of the Cape Fear region. Just by itself, the tale is a compulsive page-turner, a colonial story akin to the mystery of Agatha Christie and, dare I say, the brutality of the Final Destination movie franchise that relies upon the increasingly creative and gory deaths of its cast of characters. But one of the most peculiar facets of the story doesn't even happen in Moore's telling of it. It comes more than a hundred pages earlier in the book's preface, where Moore reveals that because of the controversial nature of just the story of the Suicide Club, Colonel James G. Burr was met with intense community criticism after merely mentioning the story in a lecture he was giving in town. If you recall back to our very first episode last summer, Burr was the man who shared the story of Samuel Jocelyn being buried alive during a speech at Thalian Hall in the late 1800s. 
his telling of Samuel's tragic tale, gave it new life and longevity in local lore. Moore doesn't specify when or where Burr gave this lecture on the Suicide Club, but he does note that in protest of the community members condemning his recitation of it, Burr rounded up all his research, and he burned it in several barrels in his front yard. Now, for those of us who love local history, knowing Burr burned years of work on a topic that today has little to no hard evidence is almost heartbreaking. Burr was likely fed up with the local resistance to the facts of his stories. But his action denies those of us generations later, who were fascinated by this story, the benefit of his insight and research. Then again, it's no surprise why the story was met with such pushback in the community. It involves religion, atheism, death, and of course suicide, all topics very much taboo in the 1800s, and even more so in the century prior when this story is said to take place. For his book, Moore pieces together what can best be described as a patchwork of memory from the story's circulation in the community. But he also takes it one step further and claims that what happened in Wilmington actually inspired Robert Louis Stevenson's short story collection, The Suicide Club. Whether or not that's true is unclear, because the only written source of this story that I can find is in Moore's book. His story begins with an acknowledgement that he's heard two versions of what happened to the men of the club. But they both stem from the original sin, as locals saw it at the time, of the 12 young men and students who banded together in Wilmington around 1780 and 1790. They were free thinkers, unashamed of questioning religion and the afterlife. They're an orthodox club, was widely known within the small Wilmington community. And their meetings were spent listening to each other give lectures on the latest in atheist beliefs. To put it delicately, Moore doesn't mince words when talking about the club. He calls them young people incapable of understanding what they were doing and says that anyone who dismissed their meetings did so because they thought of them as boys who couldn't comprehend their, quote, truly aberrant behavior. But community backlash be damned. The Atheist Club eventually upped the shock factor by staging a mock Last Supper, a jab at the final meal the Bible says Jesus had with his 12 apostles before his crucifixion. The club turned the meal into a night of bad behavior and heavy drinking. Each man was given a role as an apostle from the Bible, and one was tasked with imitating Jesus himself. As Moore writes this, you can hear the condemnation in his voice, claiming that the men must have been too drunk to understand what they were doing, because no sober man would plan such a diabolical and satanic scheme, as he calls it. Just a few sentences later, he also dubs the supper a, quote, reckless, defiant mental attitude of men afflicted with atheistic error. After the night passed, the events weren't hidden from the public, so the community took notice when the men involved started dying. This is where Moore's story starts to diverge into two different narratives. The first finds the club assembling for a meeting after the supper and deciding that moving forward, they would elect one member to commit suicide after every meeting 
at the behest of the others. As bizarre as it may sound, suicide clubs aren't unheard of. Scroll through newspapers of any past century, and you'll find stories from across the globe talking about the clubs, which members used as a means of ending one's suffering. But Wilmington's Atheist Club, at least as told by Moore, didn't seem to be looking for a way out. In fact, they enjoyed defying the community standard. As it goes, the Wilmington group wouldn't tell the designee how to commit the act of finality. But it was understood that if chosen, they would follow through. Moore says that nine of the men held to the pact after being chosen. He even tells of an elder in the community who spoke of seeing one of these men walking on the side of the road and crying. When asked why he was shedding tears, he simply said, Oh, I've got to die tonight. After the ninth man died at his own hands, the remaining three members disbanded the club and the suicide stopped, as abruptly and mysteriously as they had begun. More than 200 years later, you have to wonder, considering there was no secrecy placed on the club's organization, why did no one in the close-knit community ask these men why they were doing this? Did anybody offer them a hand or support? Or were they so turned away by the story of the mock Last Supper that they turned a blind eye? If any such questions were asked, Moore doesn't talk about them in his story. This first narrative thread ends with the disbandment of the club. But the other version of the story that Moore shares somehow delivers a more brutal demise for the majority of the men. In this telling, the members of the club, for all intents and purposes, bathed in the seething hatred the community directed at them after the mock supper. They protested the protesters, asking what right did they have to criticize them, and what harm had they actually done to the fervent Christian beliefs of those not involved. But soon, the conversation turned to one of more tragic whispers. The legend goes that not long after the supper, one of the men dropped dead as he was preparing for bed one night. A month later, a second man turned a gun on himself to the surprise of everyone who knew him. Within three months of the supper, a third man had fallen out of a window and died as soon as he hit the ground. A fourth member became detached from those around him and would soon borrow a boat and travel up the Cape Fear River, with only his body floating back downstream the next day. A fifth succumbed to a massive stroke that claimed his life within minutes. A sixth and a seventh took a horse and carriage for a ride out of town and never returned. When the vehicle was discovered near Wrightsville Sound, it was smashed into pieces from colliding with a tree and the men's bodies were found nearby, having died instantly after being thrown from the carriage. Next, the eighth member was abusing one of his slaves when the man couldn't take the punishment any further and pulled a knife on his owner. The slave slit the man's throat, watching as he bled out in seconds. The final moment in this grim pattern came as if it were a sign from a higher power. 
Several months had now passed since the supper, and a ninth member was walking past an unspecified church when the heavy metal cross atop the steeple became dislodged and plummeted to the ground. In a moment of extreme coincidence, it hits the man below, killing him instantly. With the final three members at their wit's end and trying to survive, they met as a group one final time and officially disbanded. And the deaths are said to have ended. This story is all from the writings of Moore, who says the club's history was also shared by a local pastor to his congregation some years later. There isn't much opportunity to fact-check Moore's story simply because there doesn't seem to be much evidence still in existence. But you have to wonder what Burr found in his research and what information was given to the flames in protest. As we discussed last season, many facets of Wilmington's early days were the victims of a string of fires in the 1800s. Might this story be one of those lost? This region has a fascinating stable of stories, legends, and myths that have been saved from the cruelty of time by historians and admirers, many just like Moore, even if he is giving his stories his undeniable flourishes. The Suicide Club intrigues us more than 200 years later, in part because it plays out as a story of bizarrely precise retribution in the eyes of those who condemned the existence of the Atheist Club. But its fractured recollection in the pages of Moore's book and its history of continued local protest are more evidence that these stories we tell on the podcast have already reverberated within this community for decades, and in some cases, centuries. We just happen to be the latest generation to find enjoyment in their captivating existence. Joining me now to close out the story of the Suicide Club and this season of Cape Fear Unearthed is a voice that many of you will be familiar with. It is Chris E. Fonville Jr., a local historian who has been on the show uh, several times now. Thanks for coming back, Chris. It's great to be back. I was on your first first episode, yep. and so it was great to close out season two. Yes, this is full circle moment for both uh, of us. So we are going to talk about several topics because I think the Suicide Club is a good launching point for a conversation about history keeping in this area because it's such a, a, an interesting story. And I pitched this story to you when we were filming the Revolutionary War episode. And I basically just said, I didn't really know how to tell it because there's no way to really know at this point if the story that Lewis T. Moore says in his book or kind of relays in his book is true because there's even a, an admission the, the main records for it were burnt in protest by Colonel James G. Burr. So have you ever done any research your own into this story? There's not much to tell. I mean, the only account that we have of the Suicide Club, published at least, is in the book by Lewis T. Moore, Stories Old and New of the Cape Fear Region. Undoubtedly, Burr told the story in a public lecture at Thalian Hall, I believe in 1890, when he was invited by the ladies of St. James Episcopal Church to give a lecture to, to try and raise funds um, for the Confederate monument out at Oakdale Cemetery. Well, and that was also when he told the Samuel Jocelyn story around that time, exactly. which we spoke about in that first episode of the show. Uh, right. Did he also mention the Suicide Club at that time? We don't know. Uh, he had gained a reputation as a public lecturer as early as 1867. 
So by 1890, he's in his uh, in his early 70s. So he'd been speaking about local history and writing a little bit about local history. No books were ever published, but he did newspaper articles. Um, oh gosh, for for decades now. So did Burr give the, or tell the story uh, in 1890? Was it an earlier date? We don't know. Moore doesn't tell us. And Burr, as you know. Uh, demonstratively destroyed all of the uh, manuscript material that he had collected apparently for many, many years about local Kafir history in protest to the protesters who were angry about him relating this very controversial story about the Suicide Club. Yes, that's so frustrating now, a hundred year, hundred and some years on that that's that that happened as a way of just kind of reacting to to these people i mean so who would have been mad at this i mean do we have any idea of who would have who would have been frustrated with this story he was telling because he was really just relaying the facts or at least the facts that you know are presented in lewis t moore's book right well we don't know because we don't have any names we don't even know the date true moore said that the Suicide Club was formed sometime in the 1780s, 1790s by a group of young atheists and r- rabble-rousers, but we don't know names. Yeah. Wilmington at the time, 1780s, 1790s, would have been a very small community. There might have been 1,200, maybe 1,500 people living here. Everyone would have known everyone. Perhaps some of these young men came from uh, very prominent families, and their descendants and again, we don't know when the story was first related, but it might have been their grandchildren or their great-grandchildren took offense that Burr mentioned their names. And if he told the story, as Moore claims that he did, undoubtedly he would have mentioned names. And I think that is what raised the ire of the descendants of some of these young men. And then they confronted Burr on the street. And, uh, you know, it probably got a little acrimonious, a little testy to the point that in protest of the protesters, again, he burned all of his manuscript material that he already told James Sprunt he would inherit when Burr passed away. As I was reading this story and and as I told our listeners, I read this story really early on when I started the podcast. It's hard to skip a chapter that's titled The Suicide Club, A Strange Tradition uh, in a book when you're looking through stories. It's a catchy title. It's a catchy title. And maybe that was intentional. You know, we spoke just before we started recording a little bit about who Lewis T. Moore was. Um, so why was he writing a book like this? What was what was the purpose? Yeah. Well, he was a native Wilmingtonian. He was born uh, here in 1885. His father, Roger Moore, uh, had been a Confederate cavalry officer. Moore was a uh, graduate of uh, University of North Carolina where he played catcher on the baseball team oh, wow. uh, and then moved back to Wilmington and eventually became the uh, secretary of the Chamber of Commerce. So he was uh, – a lot of his activities were devoted to raising awareness of the, uh, the history and culture of, the, uh, of Wilmington and the Lower Cape Fear. He was also an amateur photographer and took some magnificent photographs gorgeous, of Wilmington from the 1930s mostly – uh, fantastic panoramic views, mm-hmm. but just capturing the, the the culture and society of Wilmington and the region uh, in an earlier, much earlier time. Uh, he was not a professional historian. He didn't take pains to research the validity of these stories. But he writes but like many he of did. them are based in fact. But some of them we cannot substantiate. Yeah. No, they're very well written. And I think, you know, I bought a copy of this book because I wanted to keep reading them and read them over again. And 
in several of the stories that we've talked about on this podcast, I either first saw in that book or, or noticed that there was a chapter after I became aware of them. And so it, he definitely did a good job of, of keeping these stories alive. It's just uh, he, he had a certain flourish. Uh, he did. He, and good thing that he wrote these stories down because had he not, they would have been lost to time. True. And who knows how many other stories uh, he had in his, under his belt that, uh, that were not published. Yeah. But good thing that he did write them down. Well, that's true because, as both of us have just said, this is the only place that you would, at least that I know of and, and you as well, would find the story of the Suicide Club. Right. Um, he had a very uh, interesting and exciting literary style. Yeah. Had a little flair to yeah. storytelling. No, no question en- about it. I would encourage anyone to go to read this book. There's there's nice little illustrations in it. and um, It's a good it, introductory history, you know, to talk about the stories of the Lord mm-hmm. K. Fear, just like Chronicles of the K. Fear by James Sprunt. Yes. It's kind of the Bible for local historians. You start with James Sprunt, and then you go from there. Absolutely. Sprunt was not a professional historian. He was a chronicler by his mm-hmm. own admission. And uh, given the uh, limitations and challenges that he faced in that he did not have repositories where he could research, like the Southern Historical Collection at Chapel Hill and State Archives in Raleigh uh, and libraries at Duke and the National Archives, um, uh, his uh, research was through mostly interviews with old Wilmingtonians. And, of course, he had a great history himself as a uh, Scottish immigrant to Wilmington, uh, became a blockade-running a uh, purser's clerk or what we would call a paymaster's clerk, used the connections that he built during the Civil War in the cotton trade to, with his father, Alexander Sprunt, started the uh, the cotton uh, exporting business here in Wilmington that grew to become the largest privately owned and operated uh, cotton exporting firm in the world. Wow. And, we, of course, we still have that legacy with the cotton exchange. Uh, down on uh, Front Street. Well, and, you know, that's kind of the next direction I want to go with this because – the, Lewis T. Moore's story about the Suicide Club involves himself, but also the legacy of James G. Burr, who was himself a successor to previous chroniclers. And, and I, I like the word chronicler for this because his, being a historian wasn't always the profession in this area. It was more about just having these stories and collecting these stories. And so uh, who was the first? I mean, do we know of who the first person who was starting to write these stories down in our area? Yeah, these guys were enthusiasts and they were just interested in local history. Where did that come from? It's probably in their blood. People ask me all the time, how did you get interested in history? I mean, why did you make history a profession? And my stock answer is, you know, I don't know. Uh, the love of history was just – has always been with me. It's just a part of who I am. It's part of my DNA. And perhaps it was this, this way for Griffith McCree, who is the earliest known chronicler in the Lower Cape Fear in the 1840s. Uh, then you've got uh, James G. Burr. Uh, who had had a very interesting life. Uh, born in Wilmington in 1817. Um, as a young man, he became an insurance agent for uh, Nautilus Insurance Agency. He became uh, the postmaster here in Wilmington in the 1850s, uh, eventually a clerk with the Bank of the Cape Fear, director with the Wilmington and Manchester Railroad, an officer in the Confederate Home Guard, which is where the rank colonel came from. He's known as Colonel James G. Burr. Uh, I wondered about anyone that. Anyone o- over the age of 45 was considered ancient in those days. Life expectancy among yeah. Southerners was 52 years of age. So uh, if you were over 45, you, you were, were elderly. Old. You were really old. <laughs> and so he was an officer in the Home Guard, uh, which is kind of uh, the local militia. But that's where that rank came from. 
He became a noted lecturer as early as 1867 and then talked frequently in public about local history until the end of his life in 1898. I mean, do you think that there's stories that have fallen through the cracks like the Suicide Club just because of evidence lost to time? Or was this area pretty well documented because of people like Moore and Sprunt and Burr and even coming up to today? Well, we all have stories to tell. Our lives are a story in a sense. So everyone who has ever lived in Wilmington, born in Wilmington, whatever, has a local history story to tell. You and I both have become a a part of the fabric of of the community. I love doing the research, doing the history. You love it as well. I do. I do. And you share it with the public. It's so important and it's become so popular. And I commend you on that. And, And again, I think all of these men saw it in that way, too. And I, and I say men because I had a number of ladies who were mentors to me. Yeah, especially I mean, in this I'm, past I'm century. I'm on shoulders of some really fine early chroniclers and historians, not only the gentleman that we've already mentioned, but Ida Kellum, who worked very closely for a long time with the Lower Cape Fear Historical Society, and Crockett Hewlett. Uh, who wrote Between the Creeks about the history of Masonboro Sound, and Elizabeth McCoy, who did such great research on uh, the the urban uh, community, mm-hmm. uh, looking at the deeds and, and the records of the layout of the town. And she wrote a great book called Block by Block, where she just documented, you know, the, the earliest records of the town of, uh, of Wilmington. And then there was also um, Henry McCoy, uh, her brother, and Lewis Philip Hall and um, Bill Reeves. Yeah, a lot of these names you've you likely heard on this right? podcast or in some of the pictures. That Bill Reeves has a great photo collection that has been used all these years. And um, wrote a great um, study of the African-American community called Strength Through Struggle. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Beverly Tetterton. Of course, Beverly. Uh, everyone, everyone knows Beverly. Knows our, Beverly. Everyone, everyone knows Beverly in town Beverly. and on I call the show. her BT. Yes, you do. And uh, Ev Smith and Wilbur Jones, both historians of World War II Wilmington. Yep. That's, I mean, that's just a list of people who have those, you know, specific things to point to. But they're all kind of, they're all kind of keeping these stories. Everyone who's doing this, yourself included, are keeping these stories alive within the community because... It starts, you know, with stories like the James G. Burr of, of burning them and, and and then filters down through more story and, and even today. But I just find that fascinating. I think that's what really drew me to this story and having that preface note from more about Burr's involvement with the story, because it shows the lineage of storytelling in this mm-hmm. area and, and history keeping. And I just I find that fascinating and, and really, really important. I can speak from absolute experience just trying to do this now do yeah. this podcast now every single one of those voices past and present are vital my father was a great storyteller his brother lw was a great storyteller of course they grew up in the days they were both born in wilmington 1920s uh, they grew up when there was no tv and computers and organized sports was just in its infancy so people entertained each other by storytelling, telling stories. And that's sort of become a lost art in a way. But um, I've tried to maintain that tradition in my own work. Uh, I think from a historian's uh, point of view, I like that I, I try to make my work well-researched, accurately told, but a good read. Yeah. Because I think you need to 
capture and then keep the attention of the reader. You want your books to be page turners. Yep. And that comes with good storytelling. So uh, that's important. And what I am interested in doing now, and I have done it with some local history articles in Salt Magazine uh, more recently, is to take some of these urban legends, urban myths and stories uh, where there is a basis in fact and then approach them from a historian standpoint. If nothing else, this episode, I think we've given all of our listeners um, some homework between seasons to go and read some of these books because they're all out there and uh, they're all really fascinating. Well, I look forward to being a part of season three. Yes. And no. Congratulations Thank on you. two seasons of Cape Fear Unearthed. Uh, it has become so popular. As evidenced by the turnout for the tour in Fort Fisher <laughs> yes. when you did the Hermit Tour. Our Hermit Tour was very popular. You expected, what, 25, 30 people and 200 people showed yes, up? Yes, we had so many listeners come out there, and uh, it was it was really fascinating. So thanks, everyone, who did come out um, for that. Because, yeah, this, this, this whole show really started because I, like yourself, I've always enjoyed history, and I found a passion for, for telling these stories here, um, and I wanted to do it a little differently with a podcast. And so, Chris, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. And uh, yes, you will be back for our third season sooner rather than later. I enjoy doing these episodes, and I'm willing, ready, and able to do them anytime you want to invite me. That's it for this week's episode on The Suicide Club. And it's also a wrap on our second season. Thank you so much for joining me this week and every week. If you're a fan of the show, don't worry. We won't be gone for long. Season three of the show will start up this summer with 10 new episodes from our local history book. Until then, we're going to have two special episodes. The first is going to be our first mini episode, and it's going to recount the history of the North Carolina Azalea Festival, Wilmington's signature event. The second one, I'm going to keep a secret for now, but just know that it's about a fiery topic, and I think you're going to enjoy it. In the off-season, be sure to share your thoughts on the show on Twitter with the hashtag CFUnearthed, or you can email me your thoughts at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. Also, please make sure you're a member of our Facebook group, where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own thoughts and memories on the region's history. In that group, I post extra content each week, and I'm going to continue doing that in the off-season. But it's also where I will reveal everything coming next for the podcast. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. As always, you can get a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Cape Fear Unearthed was written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com and on Twitter at Hunter underscore Wesley. Additional editing for this episode was done by Adam Fish, and I want to send a special thanks to WHQR in downtown Wilmington, which graciously allowed us to record this season in their studio. So thanks, WHQR. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you stream the show so you never miss an episode. And leave us a review while you're there, which will help more people find Cape Fear Unearthed. Until our next season, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. What you learn might just surprise you. <laughs>